He directed me to make the payments. He directed me to become involved in these matters, uh, including the one with McDougal, which was really between him and David Pecker, and then David Pecker's counsel. I just reviewed the documents in order to protect him. I may not agree with any of his policies or positions. You can say Mick Mulvaney had that. And he's, he's been there. He's right up front. He can see what's happening in that Oval Office. I don't think we should have a debate in front of the press on this. But the fact is the, Senate, the House Republicans could bring up this bill if they had the votes immediately and set the tone for what you want. Hello, I'm Leon Krause from Los Angeles, California. Welcome to Trumpcast once again. Just the other day, I was playing Fortnite with my 10-year-old son when I thought of Donald Trump. I know that sounds unfortunate because no one, not even an obsessive journalist who sometimes uh, hosts uh, podcasts focused solely on Donald Trump, should think about Trump when playing anything with his kids. But I honestly could not help it. As some of you might know, the premise of the game is quite simple and addictive. A group of 50 people, virtual people, parachute from a flying school bus, why not, down to an island where their only aim is to A, find weapons and build shelters, and B, kill everyone else on the island. Last player standing wins and sometimes engages in some weird dance moves that I would never dare even to try and replicate in real life. None of this reminded me of Trump. What did make me think of Trump was another variable in the game. While the group of players runs around trying to win, there's a storm, a beautiful, by the way, beautiful storm, blue and purple storm, closing in on the island. And the storm will, sooner or later, disrupt play and affect those on the island. Donald Trump is on that island. Michael Cohen, the president's closest associate for over a decade, is going to jail for three long years. His relationship with Donald Trump has ruined his life. Cohen has cooperated with investigators. Michael Flynn has done the same. Paul Manafort appears to have done so as well, however reluctantly. The storm is closing in on Washington. The storm is closing in on Donald Trump. And frankly, it shows the bizarre, counterproductive spectacle that was that televised squabble with Democrats Schumer and Pelosi showed the president increasingly distracted and diminished and angry, handing his opponents a victory through a succession of unforced errors that were baffling, if slightly amusing to watch for us all. The story in 2019 will not be the border wall. The story in 2019 and beyond will be this gathering storm. We will talk about one interesting aspect of what happened during the 2016 campaign and how that could impact the president's next very stormy few months when we return. But first, the tweets. Fake news has a purposely wrong many, over 10, are vying for and wanting the White House Chief of Staff position. Why wouldn't someone want one of the truly great and meaningful jobs in Washington? Please report the news correctly. Thank you. Democrats can't find a smocking gun tying the Trump campaign to Russia after James Comey's testimony. No smocking gun, no collusion. 
Fox News. That's because there was no collusion. So now the Dems go to a simple private transaction, wrongly call it a campaign contribution. Which it was not, but even if it was, it was only a civil case like Obama's. But it was done correctly by a lawyer and there would not even be a fine. Lawyer's liability if he made a mistake, not me. Cohen just trying to get his sentence reduced. Witch hunt. Despite the large caravans that were forming and heading to our country, people have not been able to get through our newly built walls, makeshift walls and fences, or border patrol officers and military. They are now staying in Mexico or going back to their original countries. I'm looking forward to my meeting with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. In 2006, the Democrats voted for a wall. And they were right to do so. Today, they no longer want border security. They will fight it at all costs. And Nancy must get votes for Speaker. But the wall will get built. Mike Spies is a reporter for The Trace, a nonprofit news organization that covers with great dedication America's gun violence crisis. Mike published an interesting scoop a few days ago that suggested that the NRA and the Trump campaign coordinated their advertising strategies during the 2016 presidential campaign. You will hear why this is important and potentially very, very damaging for all involved. Mike, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Leon. So, Mike, what exactly did the NRA and the Trump campaign do in those final weeks of the 2016 presidential campaign? Well, what we know is, and this is based on voluminous FCC records, is that in the fall of 2016, the NRA and the Trump campaign used the same ad placement operation to place its ads on stations across the country. Specifically, when I'm talking about the NRA, that's important because the ads that it was placing were in support of the Trump campaign. And then to sort of zoom in on that a little more, within that operation, we were able to find no fewer than four people working for this particular operation who were documented to be representatives or in some cases actually authorizing ad placements for both the Trump campaign and the NRA in support of the Trump campaign, often on the same stations. And that played out in battleground states across the country. Who were these people? Were they associated with the the Trump campaign, the NRA, both? There's a firm, and that firm, it's an established ad placement firm. And to be clear what it means to place ads, it's a very important task. You know, there's the idea of creating the messaging, which is like the commercial, the creative aspect, which people always sort of focus on. Mm -hmm. But the creative aspect is essentially useless if the ads are not targeting the right people at the right time. So there's this fairly prominent firm based in Alexandria, Virginia, called National Media Research Planning and Placement. And that firm, we discovered through corporate paperwork, has what's called a DBA, or doing business as name, which is Red Eagle Media. And that means that there's no distinction between the two. It's just another name that the company does business under. (laughs) And so... In 2016, the NRA was placing its ads in support of Trump through Red Eagle Media. And at the same time, another affiliated national media entity, this one called American Media and Advocacy Group, was placing the Trump campaign's ads. 
So really we're talking about the same operation. And then within that, you had National Media's CFO, Jonathan Farrell, signing as either you could call him a representative or an authorized agent. He was filling out or signing forms that were authorizing particular ad placements for both the Trump campaign and the NRA in support of the Trump campaign. So effectively serving as both. Mm-hmm. And then there were three other folks, two senior media buyers and another employee whose, whose names were tied up with both. And so why that's important is independent groups are allowed to independently spend as much money as they want in support of a particular candidate. In the NRA's case, that equaled some $30 million, more than any other outside group spent advocating on behalf of Trump. However, once those communications or once that spending in any way is coordinated with the campaign that's being supported... That violates electoral law, no? Exactly. It means that it's no longer an independent expenditure. It's, in fact, an in-kind contribution. And in-kind contributions are subject to strict limits. You can't spend more than $5,000. So obviously $30 million far exceeds $5,000. What federal election law permits is an outside group in a campaign to use the same vendor. But... If you're going to do that, then the vendor and those using the vendor have to ensure that those employees working for either entities are not sharing election-related information mm-hmm. with each other. One way you do that, or one thing that the FEC permits, is a thing called a firewall agreement, what's called a legal safe harbor, which is to say that everybody in the company signs a piece of paper saying that they understand the law and that they're not going to communicate and that there are punishments for failing to abide by the law, both criminal and civil. But that idea is much harder to use as cover if you have the same people documented to be working for both the campaign and the outside group. Because as one expert put it, you can't firewall yourself, right? (laughs) Obviously. Let me back up a little bit. Do we know which voters they focus on in this coordinated operation? NRA enthusiasts, conservative voters in battleground states. Do you have a sense of which voters? We have some sense. We are talking about battleground states right now. So, I mean, we found instances of this throughout Ohio, Virginia, North Carolina, Nevada. In one particular instance, it's not just that they were going to particular networks or stations and buying ad space. They were also going to syndicators, like a sports syndicator. For syndicators, that means they sell their product, their games, to a number of stations, sometimes stations that cover most markets in the country. That means those placements conceivably could have been reaching virtually everyone. But most importantly, this scenario was playing out in a Mm -hmm. number of battleground states. There was, like you described, a common targeting, a common placement. Mm -hmm. But was there also a common narrative? What was the message? Going back to the sports indicator, to me, this was one of the most stunning finds. In mid to late September, about a week apart in 2016, the NRA through Red Eagle went to this sports indicator called Raycom, and it bought ad space for seven ACC football games. Those ACC football games were taking place between late September and mid to late October. So we're talking like the heat of the election. About a week later, the Trump campaign through American Media and Advocacy Group also went to Raycom and they bought ad space for six games playing out (laughs) in that same time period. But that wasn't the amazing thing. The amazing thing was that five of the games that each side purchased were the exact same ones. In those games, there was a very clear pattern in the sense that the buys were mirror images of each other. 
So in those games, when the NRA purchased space for two ads, the Trump campaign purchased space for one ad. And when the Trump campaign purchased space for two ads, the NRA purchased space for one. So what does that do? What's the benefit of coordination? It allows you to maximize your resources. The campaign gets the lowest unit rate, which is to say when it's buying space, it gets to pay significantly less than an outside group, for example. So when you're combining your resources, you're spending far more efficiently, which is especially important if, like the NRA, you're pouring some $30 million into a campaign. And two, it means that you get to magnify your message and essentially put like way more fire on the target. So if a particular group is really important to reach, you've now done that in the most comprehensive way possible. And in that case, it's like the Trump campaign's putting out a negative message about Hillary. And then the NRA is also putting out a negative message about Hillary while also maybe putting out a more positive message about Donald Trump. It's a mix, but what winds up happening is viewer- you're right. The viewer is awash in all of this stuff. It doesn't really necessarily make the distinction between the two things. It just means that he or she's been barraged with the same message throughout the entire game. This is important and even potentially explosive because, like you explained before, electoral law prohibits exactly this sort of coordination between mm-hmm. campaigns and groups as the NRA. Could you go in, into more detail as to the legal repercussions of what you're describing? Well, unfortunately, the FEC is not at its strongest right now. There should be six commissioners, and there are only four. In order for any proper investigation to move forward, the four commissioners need to unanimously agree, and two of the commissioners are Republicans, and two are ideologically aligned with Democrats, so it's essentially like a a deadlock. But what's supposed to happen and what can happen is that once someone issues a complaint, in which case like this story, for example, generated a complaint from a watchdog group called the Campaign Legal Center— asserting that violations were likely to have occurred and that asked the FEC to investigate. The FEC ultimately can open an investigation, which over time could eventually lead to substantial civil penalties. Now, Mm -hmm. should the FEC not take the case up, which can often happen because of its current situation, when coordination seems so blatant, it gives an outside group like the Campaign Legal Center standing to file a lawsuit in federal court which would effectively, if a judge ruled in their favor, have the effect of forcing the FEC to take up an investigation. At the same time, another thing that can happen is within the Department of Justice, there is a particular division that looks at bribery and also election-related violations, and this would be characterized as one of them. And if the DOJ decided to pursue a case, and it could, then we're talking about jail time. If you're found guilty of conspiring to violate the Federal Election Campaign Act, you could face as much as up to five years in prison. There are civil penalties that, that, that could be imposed by the DOJ as well. And then as a separate matter, come 2019, once the House is back in Democratic control, I believe it would be within the authority of oversight committees to launch investigations as well and issue subpoenas. A subpoena, for example, might ask for internal communications, emails. Between both, between the NRA and the Trump campaign, for example. Right. Or between, frankly, the media buyer, right, the media buyers, employees who are working for both. Mike, how much money did the NRA spend during the 2016 campaign and how did it spend it? And also how involved is the NRA, financially speaking, in campaigns? In 2016, the NRA spent just over 30 million dollars in support of Trump, which was far more than it had ever spent on a candidate before. Also, it was exceptional in that, as I said earlier, 
most conservative independent groups decided to sit out that race. If you remember, they weren't gung-ho about Trump. It was really the only one who had gotten in it a big way and in some ways had gotten ahead of its skis because the NRA is, you know, suffering or going through a, all kinds of financial problems right now. And that exorbitant spending is not disconnected. Traditionally, though, as you were saying, yeah, the NRA tends to be a, a force in elections and does spend considerably. But that was a very exceptional moment. This is not the only scandal the NRA is involved in when it comes to the 2016 campaign, not in the least Maria Butina, this alleged Russian spy, pled guilty to participating in a Russian conspiracy against the United States, and the NRA played a big role in that story that might grow, Mike. That is true. So what we do know is that Maria Butina, a Russian operative who could be characterized as a spy, but it seems to be generally referred to as an agent for the Russian state, an unregistered agent, had over a period of years developed real ties to the National Rifle Association and the Republican Party. Those ties came about because she had started Russia's first gun rights group called Right to Bear Arms in 2010, I believe. The function of that is still in question. Whether or not it was an authentic group or just a cover is still not clear. But what wound up happening is she and the person who is her alleged handler, a Russian central banker with close ties to the Kremlin named Alexander Torshin, were in frequent contact over a period of years between like 2011 and 2016 with top NRA board members and donors who made trips to Moscow. And then also they were frequently showing up at NRA events in America and also, I think, even made appearances at headquarters. And at those events, they were pictured with the NRA's very top officials, including Wayne LaPierre. But what actually was happening between the two is still not clear. There's certainly no, there's no, I have to see, I mean, there's no evidence right now, despite it's been reported, that any Russian money was funneled into the NRA's coffers. I think in 2017, McClatchy reported that the FBI was probing whether or not that has happened, but I don't, I have not seen that story substantiated by any other publication. But what did Butina want to accomplish through the NRA? Do we know that? I think there's some sense that she, and whoever, you know, in her handlers viewed the NRA as a very powerful institution within the Republican Party and that there was something to be gained by creating a close relationship between Russian officials and the NRA because that would be a vehicle through which policy could be influenced. I think maybe the thought is the Republican Party, conservative stalwarts in the Republican Party actually have a lot more in common with Russian officials than those in the Democratic Party, despite the fact that the Republican Party is traditionally very anti-Russia, has continued that Cold War mentality despite the, the end of the Cold War for a long time. So you think she chose the NRA to make inroads into America's political establishment for ideological reasons or out of some pragmatic calculation? Probably both. I think she thought perhaps the ideological alignment between the two would allow them to form a natural relationship that for practical purposes that would potentially, I suppose, allow Russia to, to influence policy to its favor. Again, that's just what's been put out into the world. When you look at the whole puzzle in front of you as a journalist and you see what you described for us, the collaboration between the NRA and the Trump campaign and now the Butina piece of the puzzle, this woman who has just pled guilty. When you look at the puzzle, you step back. What do you see, Mike? I see an election that has a big question mark hanging over it, even putting the Russia stuff aside, which seems to be the high likelihood, according to experts who reviewed the records that we retrieved of coordination between the Trump campaign and the NRA, should be 
exceptionally concerning to everyone. If Michael Cohn, for example, is going to prison for three years for paying out hush money, which in the end was a violation of campaign finance laws, then this really isn't any different. And it just would mean that it happened in more than one instance. I want to ask you about the NRA itself and about its future. The percentage of Americans who favor stricter gun control in the United States has grown from 43% in 2012 to around 65% now, maybe a little bit more. That's a 20% jump. You think the NRA is currently fighting a losing battle with public opinion? It would seem that way, at least based on the statistics that you laid out. But until there are substantial changes in the Senate for example. Before I say that, I think one thing that's changed is that there is no one, the, the Democratic Party for a long time still had what I would, you, know, you could call holdouts, who still felt some allegiance to the NRA and tried to carry out its will in order to stay in its good graces. And it seems like there's no longer any political capital in that. And it also seems like the NRA and the Republican Party have tied their fates together and the NRA is essentially only exclusively supporting Republicans. Mm-hmm. When you talk about you mentioned those statistics, once there's a more favorable makeup in the upper chamber, when there is a moment at which there are 60 Democrats in the Senate, and there's also Democratic control of the House, then it's unlike before, it is it is not hard to imagine some kind of comprehensive legislation getting passed. Then also at the state level, you know, as, as state houses, many flip back to Democratic control, that will also greatly curtail the NRA's influence. One thing the NRA has really benefited from over the last eight years is unprecedented single party control, which has allowed it to push its agenda uh, without really any pushback. I would never count any organization that's been around for such a long time and has become such an institution out. I wouldn't say like it's curtains for the NRA, their end days are near. But I mean, I do think that they're certainly in a far weaker or they're heading toward a weaker position, at least at this point, than they have been in in quite quite a while. An interesting part of this debate in America is whether or not gun massacres, this, this horrible act of violence, have any political impact and legislative impact. What's your opinion on that? I mean, we saw in Florida, things certainly changed after the latest horrible massacre there. What's your take on that? Well, I think it certainly has had real political impact in 2018 like no other. I mean, it was the first time that I really saw lots of candidates, not just having gun reform as part of their platform, but like essentially running on it as one of their key issues and embracing it as something that they could gain from. And that's just unprecedented at such a wide scale. And I'll also just point out something that wasn't really talked about very much, which is that you mentioned Florida. That was a moment at which over 60 Republicans in that legislature who had all had A or A-plus ratings from the NRA violated or went, went against the NRA's will and voted for a package of of new restrictions, which obviously angered the organization, but also was something that had never happened before, especially in a state like Florida, which is one of the most pro-gun in the country and has been at the forefront of passing some of the most experimental gun rights policies in the country. But even more interestingly, the governor of Florida at the time, Rick Scott, signed that bill. And Rick Scott was somebody who, for the entirety of his tenure, perhaps more than anyone before him, was just willing on every level, both administratively and also legislatively, willing on every level to do the NRA's bidding and was rewarded for that. The NRA spent a fair amount of money helping to reelect Scott. And this time around, the NRA 
couldn't, I suppose, directly punish him because I think they'd still prefer having him as a senator than the Democratic incumbent. But Scott won his race and he did it without any NRA support and with a C or C minus rating. It was like a C rating from the NRA. In Florida, no less. In Florida, no less. And to be clear, he, he won that race, you know, by less than one percentage point. But that is essentially the margin of victory he had in each of his gubernatorial races. So then there's this other question, which is maybe maybe the NRA support didn't make that much of a difference in the first place. But I think that that result should scare the NRA because it does demonstrate something important. You know, it just there's that there was no option for it. It couldn't come out in support of a Democrat. So it couldn't really do it. It couldn't spend against Scott. And in the end of the day, nothing has changed for Rick Scott. He's he's ascended to greater office despite bucking the NRA's will. Finally, Mike, the Trace, the news organization you work for and with, focuses its uh, journalistic efforts on America's gone violent crisis. That's what you work on day in and day out. What will it take for America to finally come to its senses on gun control? I personally thought that after Sandy Hook, which was the very definition of hell, things would change in this country. They didn't. What will it take, you think? Is it just a matter of time? like you described, and change in Congress, demographics? What, what do you think it will take? Well, I think if we're just talking about changing the law or strengthening laws, then I think it really is just a matter of a change in Congress. I think the moment that the Democratic Party reaches a filibuster-proof threshold in the Senate, then there's really nothing that can be— I mean, unless, you know, there, I'm sure there would be court challenges afterward. For context— after Newtown, there were Democrats in the Senate that voted against the legislative package that was on the floor, which would have expanded background checks. And I just think there is absolutely no way that that would happen were there enough Democrats now in the Senate to vote for a similar bill. There is the potential now that you have Rick Scott has shown that the consequences may not be that bad. You may also have some Republicans from purple states or even left-leaning states who would be willing to go against the NRA as well without having fear of any reprisal or perhaps because they may even have something greater to gain. Will we see, for example, the miracle of a Marco Rubio going against the NRA uh, one day or, or am I just dreaming? Well, Rubio's a tougher. <laughs> Rubio has a history of just doing whatever is politically expedient for Rubio. So who knows? I don't know. It's a tougher call with him. I mean, he did sort of throw his lot in in a deep way in, in 2016 when he was seeking to get the NRA's backing. But I don't think that's who he really is ideologically. I mean, when he was a state lawmaker, he was certainly very pro-business, but he wasn't somebody who was known as being overly stalwart with respect to gun rights and, in fact, disappointed the gun lobby during his time as, as House Speaker. And when he ran for his first Senate election, I think he did so with a grade of like a B-. minus. Well, he was also pro-immigration uh, reform and then right. he was... That's what I mean. He was against it. I don't know how committed he really is to anything. Yeah, he's a man not of principle but of positions. That's that's the truth with Rubio and with many in the Republican Party. Mike, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so very much. Oh, thanks for having me. And that's the show for today. What did you think? Let us know on Twitter. I'm at Leon Krause, L-E-O-N-K-R-A-U-Z-E. And the show is always at Real Trumpcast. And if you're an enthusiastic Trumpcast or Slate fan, I have one more step for you. Sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year, the price of a nice dinner or a trip to the movies with popcorn included. So come on, just do it. Go to Slate 
slate.com slash plus. That's slate.com slash plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Maria Elena Ochoa in Los Angeles, California. John Di Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. Find him at, at johnnyd23 on Twitter. And I'm Leon Krause. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast. That Oval Office meeting was a disaster. Mike Pence fell asleep. Chuck Schumer, the guy, wasn't even looking at me. Chuck, what were you looking at? And Nancy Pelosi scolding me. Unbelievable. I felt like I was in fifth grade and my teacher was giving me a hard time. Didn't like it at all.